0: It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. What do you see on the surface? And what do you see when you look just below it? It was only a few weeks ago that Daphne and I had the chance to revisit the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It is massive, wing after wing, more than you could possibly take in no matter how many times you visit. Sometimes I race through trying to see as much as I can in one visit. And other times I go more slowly and carefully. Now, looking at art, I'm usually pretty good at seeing the big picture. Come on, that's a good art pun. (laughs) For great art, you don't need to be a specialist to understand the overall meaning of the work. But with all the great works, there's always more to see than just what's on the surface. Personally, I need a bit of help to catch those finer details. And to help people like me, most art museums now have audio guides... Standing in front of a work, I can type in the number on my phone and put in my earbuds and hear someone explain the extra layers of detail and meaning. Those things that are just below the surface. The more obvious parts are great, but what's below the surface can be incredible to find. And while the same can be said for much of scripture, it's especially evident in John's gospel. His writing emphasizes the multiple planes on which Jesus is operating. It comes across in the words and the personal interactions that John chooses to include in his book. This morning's story continues the string of those interactions that emphasize Jesus as the supreme revelation of God. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament's promises and institutions. And from conversations with the highly regarded, like Nicodemus, to now this overlooked Samaritan woman. John's goal is to show the glory of Christ. Jesus moves through Samaria because, as we read in the first five verses, he thinks it's best to leave Judah now for Galilee. And this is our first chance to see something significant just below the surface of the story. Why did Jesus feel the need to leave? The ministry in Judea was successful. People were coming to him to hear teaching, to see miracles, and to be baptized. And it is those baptisms that were getting John and Jesus in trouble. Those baptisms are why Jesus decided to move his ministry elsewhere. Look closely. Baptism is the dominant theme of the first few verses, The part that explains that Jesus decided to leave. The theme of water continues all throughout the passage. You see, as their influence grew, so did the Pharisees' attention on Jesus and John's ministries. And while there were many Old Testament washings for purification, Jesus and John treated baptism as if it were also a rite of initiation, a mark of belonging to something. To be identified with the ministry of Jesus, a person needed to be baptized. And this was true even for Jews. And that really bothered the Pharisees. What did a Jew possibly need to be initiated into? They already had the Old Testament ceremonies and rituals that were required to be identified with Israel, Did they also need to be identified with Jesus through this ceremony of water and the triune name? Jesus knew that the answer, yes, infuriated the Pharisees. And so he heads for Galilee to avoid that conflict at this time. And on the way, he passes through what the Jews call Samaria. Now, on the surface, Samaria is just another place on the map. But just below, you find it represents much more. The Roman government, they're in charge now. They treat Judea and Samaria as one entity, the Israel territory. But we know these distinct regions have a complicated history. Samaria was King Omri's capital of the northern kingdom when they broke off from the southern kingdom. Judea is what was left of the southern kingdom. And by faithlessness, rejection of God's word, both kingdoms were eventually conquered. All the people were taken into exile, first the north and then the south. But that lengthy process of the split of these two kingdoms and then the religious differences that developed, the eventual fall of those kingdoms, how they treated one another during that fall, it created a significant animosity between the two. When Israel returned from exile... The bad blood was still there. One historian put it this way. The Jews returning to their homeland viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by unacceptable elements. The Samaritans had built a rival temple. They claimed their own religious heritage. And they did not accept any books of the Hebrew Bible outside of the Pentateuch, those first five books. I'd add to that that they also had different expectations for the Messiah. Judah's expected Messiah was a conquering political hero. The Samaritans were waiting for a teaching Messiah who would lead them into truth, would speak to them God's word. That sounds good until you remember that they had rejected nearly the entire Old Testament. They had rejected all the prophets. They wanted to be taught because they were in ignorance, but their ignorance was self chosen. They had rejected the way God had revealed himself through the prophets. So in Sychar, the Sumerian town, Jesus comes upon Jacob's well and he stops to rest and have a drink while his disciples go into town to get food. And it's at the well that he encounters a woman alone and drawing water for herself. Now you can imagine the painting of this interaction. There are actually some beautiful ones out there. And you easily get the gist of this story between the two, the Lord Jesus and this downcast, rejected woman coming together at the well. But for each person in this interaction, there's a lot that's below the surface, isn't there? The first century observers, like the disciples in verse 27, think everything about this situation is off. In this culture, a woman should not be drawing water alone. She should be in a group of women from her town. They should go together. But she is alone. And she's alone because she chose to go, as verse 6 tells us, in the sixth hour at about noon. Andrew and I played tennis yesterday and we started early to make sure we were done early. That's what Nathan does when he mows the grass for his Aunt Jenny. Who wants to be out doing manual labor in the hottest part of the day if it can possibly be avoided? Yet here is this woman performing the very strenuous task of drawing and carrying water. And she's doing it under the midday sun. And she does it at noon because she knows she'll be alone. The disciples would later marvel that Jesus was talking to this woman. And she marvels that a Jewish man would talk to her, much less ask her to draw water. She doesn't know who he is. Jesus is used to that, but she knows what he's supposed to believe about her, that she's unclean on the surface. He should have nothing to do with her, but what's below the surface is something unique about Jesus. He is never defiled by touching what is unclean. On the contrary, as another pastor puts it, he sanctifies whatever he touches. And so Jesus asks her to give him a drink. And when she pushes back, questioning his abandonment of societal norms, he replies, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. The audio commentary for this Section of the painting might reference one of the artist's earlier works, the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, because on the surface, they seem so different. He, an educated, influential Jew, she, a Samaritan, all Samaritans are despised by Jews, and this one appears to be despised even by her own people. He is put together exceedingly righteous by all appearances, and she, as we will soon learn, has a sordid past. But under the surface is a striking similarity. They both desperately needed Christ. Nicodemus thought he was secure in his identification with the party of the Pharisees. This woman is utterly insecure and identifies with no one. She's a loner. But what both need is to find their identities in Christ. So, Christ gives himself to them. He reveals himself to them, different as they are. And when he does it, each of them struggle with what to make of them. The woman, from her initial response, seems to think that Jesus is a quack. There are springs of flowing water nearby, but to get water out of this spot, even the patriarch Jacob saw the need for a well. Well, What Jesus is saying is just nutty. But as with Nicodemus on the concept of born again, she isn't thinking on the same wavelength as Jesus. He gives another of his multi-layered answers. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Of course, she's thinking about the cool, liquid water that could satisfy her physical thirst. That's what's on the surface. It's easy to see, and it matters. But Jesus is talking about something else, something just below, because Jesus knows that actually she has an even deeper kind of thirst that she can't yet admit. Because she's looking at the surface. Her sights are set too low. In verse 15, as she starts to have just a seed of hope that Jesus could actually be the Messiah. Look at what she thinks she stands to gain, if that's true. Her The best thing she can imagine if Jesus actually is the Messiah. This outcast woman living in shame and misery. The best hope she can long for is. Is that these daily embarrassing difficult trips to the well for water would stop. Now I don't want to minimize what that would have meant to her. She probably counted her days by those trip. She reflects on her life in measures of shame. The best she can hope for is that Jesus if he is who he says he is could spare her this particular burden and in her pain she's unable to look deeper. And see that through Christ, all the shame and guilt of her life can be taken away and replaced with springs of eternal life. Thomas Aquinas was once asked to reconcile Paul's words in Romans that no one seeks God with our experience that a lot of people sure seem to be. But he said, such people are not seeking God. They are desperately seeking peace, seeking relief from their guilt, seeking something to fill up the emptiness of their souls and their lives. But they are not seeking God. Like this woman, they, they set their sights too low. Verse 16 begins the most well-known part of this exchange. Her claim to have no husband is a clever statement. It's technically true. And she hopes it could shut down the conversation, protecting her from a subject of great pain. But Jesus will not be deflected. He will, however, be sensitive to the pain. Don't miss that. He's gentle with her. He commends her truthfulness, even as he reveals himself as the one who knows what's inside all of us. The fact that she will later describe this moment to others as a man who told me everything I ever did shows you just how significant was the mess she'd made of her own life in her thoughts. It's how she defined her life. So far, her life is defined by pain and disappointment and shame and guilt. And so Jesus speaks into her life, and it becomes clear to her that Jesus is a prophet. Now, in the Samaritan understanding, remember, Pentateuch only, there are only two prophets. There's Moses, and there's the prophet Messiah, who is yet to come. So she knows she's dealing with someone of significant religious importance, and she wants to show him that she herself is aware of such things. She's a religious person, And so she raises a challenge about where worship can rightly be offered. We're all familiar with the temple in Jerusalem. Actually, we're about to read that in 1 Kings. The central location of Jewish worship in the Old Testament. Samaritans, though rejecting most of the Old Testament, still saw in the Pentateuch the command to find the place that God has chosen for worship. And because they only had the Pentateuch, They go to Abraham. When Abraham entered the promised land, he built an altar at Shechem. So there on nearby Mount Gerizim, which overlooks Shechem, that's where the Samaritans built their temple for the worship of God. If Jesus is the prophet Messiah, the Samaritans have been waiting for, this woman thinks he should be able to answer this tricky and important theological question, who got it right? Whose temple is in the right place? Where should God be worshipped? And the answers are in three parts. First, continuing the theme of this string of interactions in John, Jesus says neither temple really matters because his coming renders the old ways obsolete. But he does acknowledge, second, that it was the Jews, not the Samaritans, who got it right. And they were right because God revealed himself to them in the scriptures. The scriptures the Samaritans had rejected. The last part of the answer is that this revelation in the history of salvation was continuing now through Christ, the very one to whom she speaks. And so soon, even already, all worship will be offered through him and not through An earthly temple. In this passage, God's revelation might just be the most important theme in the whole thing. And it's just below the surface. Remember that John's gospel from the beginning has been making the point that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. We can know who God is. We see God. We experience God through Christ And through union with Christ, being identified with him and abiding in him, we have eternal life with God. And what Jesus says is on the surface about worship. That was the topic of her question. But the theme on which the answer is built is God's self-revelation. He said to her at the beginning in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, he's using that phrase, the gift of God, just as the Jews used it to refer to God's word, his revelation. That's what they called God's gift. And by her question, she fancies herself a religious person. Despite the mess she's made of her life, despite setting aside the way God has revealed himself, she fancies herself a religious person. She knows of temple worship, and so she'll discuss theology with this stranger. But she doesn't even know God when she sees him face to face. If she really knew God's revelation, if her life was about his word, she would have recognized the one to whom she was speaking. Kids, in my job here at the church and in my other work, a lot of what I do is about helping people make decisions. Decisions can be hard to make, but the process we use to make them is pretty simple. And the most important thing for a Christian who wants to make good decisions is to know what God has said in his word. What is required? What is forbidden? What is wise? What is helpful? All of those questions are answered in the Bible where God reveals himself to us. So look at what Jesus says about Samaritan worship. They worship what they do not know. Why don't they know? Because they rejected God's self-revelation in the scriptures. The Jews, by contrast, worship what they know. Salvation is from the Jews because in God's plan of self-revelation, he started with Israel. He revealed himself to them. So whatever else they get wrong, God revealed himself to them. And that's important, Jesus says, because God is spirit. That is, he cannot be known unless he reveals himself. Hebrews 1 says God revealed himself in many and diverse ways. This includes the prophets who the Samaritans rejected. But now he has spoken fully and finally through the supreme revelation of his son. This is John's point. So when you tie that back to worship. Worship in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth are not then two separate characteristics that we have to bring to God in right worship. Spirit and truth is God's own way of describing God centered worship made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit and in personal knowledge of and in conformity to God's own self-revelation in Christ. Worship in spirit and truth is worship that is in Christ that's why the word of Christ dwells richly in our worship through the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs it's why we read the word of Christ and preach the word of Christ and break the body and blood of Christ here at the table we share in that together so in verse 25 in response to Jesus's self revelation she does it She allows herself just a smidge of hope. She puts herself out there showing her willingness to believe in the one who is to come. It's not a lot of faith. It's not what we would call bold faith. But it is faith. She says, I know of the one who. Who is coming. What she's saying is that she will identify with the Messiah. She will identify with Christ if He will identify with her. And He will. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am He. I've come to enjoy art museums. We've had the privilege of seeing some great ones over the years. I've listened to a lot of those audio commentaries explaining the many things that lie just below the surface of each work. And because over the years these men and women have been teaching me how to understand art, there are now many times where I find I no longer need their help. That's a muscle that we should be developing and exercising for the reading and understanding of Scripture as well how to see what's below the surface. Look at verses 27 through 30. This tail end of the story, the the what's on the surface part here is useful and important, but I bet now even looking over it just yourselves, you can see a lot of what's below there. You can see this woman. Who only a few verses ago was too ashamed to even join the other women in her town to gather water. And now she has the boldness to go into that town and witness for Christ. What makes that possible? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the effect of union with Christ it's commitment to his glory that melts away our shame and our doubts and our inadequacies of everything else in life. She had no doubt tried up to this point. This was the one thing that worked. Identifying herself with Christ. I bet you also notice that she leaves her old water jar behind. It seems like an unimportant detail, but why is it included in the story? Perhaps in Christ, we can finally admit that those old sources of satisfaction never really satisfied. Perhaps we can leave them behind as we recognize that we were seeking from them more than they could give. Oh, we pretended, but they always left us feeling emptier than before. What happens when a great painter or sculptor, or for that matter, composer, songwriter, filmmaker, playwright? What happens when an artist expresses themselves through beauty and truth? Wonderful things on the surface, and depth and complexity below. So what do you think would happen when the God of all glory, the supreme artist of the universe, chooses to reveal himself to the world that he's made. A grand story of salvation on the surface with amazing, intricate, and meaningful details just below. And by his grace, may we never stop looking.